Good morning. My name is Ken Delage. I serve as the senior pastor here. And if I didn't, if I didn't meet you at the front door, I don't know how you snuck in. But if I didn't meet you, then let me just say welcome. We're glad you're here worshiping the Lord with us at Mercy Hill. So Mother's Day was just a few weeks ago, and Father's Day is coming up next week. These are what you might call cultural holidays that we have, opportunities for us as a culture to remember something that we value together. Uh, And in this case, it's something like remembering and celebrating the selflessness of parents. Um, So it's an opportunity to, you know, give dad a call next week, or maybe you sent flowers to mom, or maybe you remembered those who have already passed away. Um, But it's an opportunity for us to remember something together. And this morning, we're continuing a a summer, which you might call holiday series. And it's holiday, not in the sense of vacation, but holiday in the sense of something where we need to, to gather together to remember something, to recall something. And what we, what we want to remember are the, the values that we most cherish as a local church. To come back to what we hold most dear and to make sure that we are treasuring and not neglecting. That we're defending and not assuming. That we're remembering and not forgetting what is most important. This series is for those of you that have been part of Mercy Hill for some time, that we can gather afresh and again back around those things that we hold dear and recall them and celebrate them together. And this series is for those of you that are newer to Mercy Hill so that you can be brought in to these precious truths of God's word that we value, that we cherish, that we hold dear. So especially for those of you that are new, I hope you've got your notes because there's going to be a quiz at the end of class. So last week we started this series and we talked about the church, the what and why of church. And this week we're going to talk about being gospel-centered. Gospel-centered. We are a gospel-centered church. What does it mean to be a gospel-centered church? And why are we pursuing being a gospel-centered church? So this brings us to the first point on your outline, letter A. What is gospel-centered? What do we mean by that? Well, it's a well-known truth that you can really only have one first priority. In fact, if you have multiple first priorities, you don't really have a first priority. You can only have one thing in first place, one thing in first priority, and that is true for a church. And it is wise for a church to identify what the first priority should be and stick to it. Because there's a lot of good things that can happen in a church and through a church. There's a lot of good things that churches can celebrate. But there, a problem exists in a church when what is a good secondary thing becomes the primary thing. That's a distraction from what is most important. So we want to identify what is most important and stick to what is most important because churches, churches can be mission-centered. 
We love missions. We are grateful for missions. We just prayed for some missionaries. Churches can prioritize sending missionaries and cultivating a passion for missions and reaching the unreached and proclaiming the gospel around the world. Churches should be about missions. Churches can be worship-centered. We also love worship. We love worshiping the Lord together. But churches can can prioritize, above all else, kind of a, a corporate time together, worshiping the Lord, being in the presence of God. Churches can be centered on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We're grateful for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. This morning, Jim came forward with a prophecy for us, which I think was edifying for our body. I'm grateful for that. Churches can become discipleship-centered, centered on the pursuit of godliness and the pursuit of holiness, or they can be centered on mercy ministry in the community seeking to care for the needs around them and alleviating suffering and pursuing justice. All of these are good. In fact, I think you could argue all of these are very good things, but none of them should be at the center of the church. None of them should be the highest priority, the organizing priority. At Mercy Hill, we seek to be gospel Centered. So let's first ask the question, what is the gospel? So make sure that we're on the same page as we talk about being gospel-centered. What is the gospel? The gospel, as it says in your notes, is the person and work of Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners. It's the person and the work of Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners. So there's two big parts to that. It's the person of Christ and it's the work of Christ, right? So it's the person of Christ. That is, he is fully God and fully man. He is the divine son of God. He came to earth in human weakness, but bearing the divine traits of love and mercy for people and righteousness and justice that God's character requires. He is fully God and fully man. And he came to earth for our salvation. So there's a work of Christ component here as well. And his work did not begin on the cross. That's the high point of it. But his work began in his incarnation when, when God and man were united in the one person of Christ for the first time ever. So incarnation, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension are all part of the gospel story. And so the gospel is a, a story. It's a true story, but it is a, a story. It's a, it's a telling. It's an event. It's news. It comes to us as news. So I'm listening to an audiobook right now on the Pacific theater of World War II. And I find this very interesting. I don't know if you would, but I find it very interesting. And I, I'm hearing about all the different battles and, and what led up to it in Japan and where the U.S. was at when things got started. But it is written from an American perspective. And so it begins, as you might expect, on December 7th, 1941, a date that will live in infamy. 
And I cannot imagine, I, I struggle to put myself into the shoes of somebody first hearing that news back on December 8th. How did they hear it? Was it through the radio? Was it reading the paper? Was it word of mouth that they heard about this bombing? And it came to them as news, as information across the airwaves of, of Japanese bombers and of sunk battleships. And what we should be aware of is though people responded to that news, maybe with anger or indignation or fear or determination, their response to that news did not change the news. The news was entirely independent of their response to it. And so it is with the gospel. The gospel, friend, comes to us as news, as an accomplished event, as something which happened in history. It is done. It is finished. It comes to us as information about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we can respond to that news generally in one of two ways. That, that news can be rejected. But the rejection of that news does nothing to the gospel itself. It takes nothing away from what Christ did. That news can be accepted and received. And praise God if you have accepted and received the gospel. But your exception accepting of it and reception of it does not add to it because the gospel itself is already complete and done and finished. So the gospel is not something subjective that Christians feel about. It is something objective, which God tells us about that happened outside of you and outside of me but praise God has everything to do with you and with me as the Lord saves people through it. We seek to be gospel-centered. This gospel, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That means that we seek to keep the gospel at the place of highest priority as a church. That there is that it, that it be uneclipsed, that it be without rival, and that that be true across the ministry of this church so that the organizing main focus of the preacher is to get to Jesus Christ every Sunday in the preaching of God's Word. So that as we, as we lift up the Lord's name in worship, that we worship God in three persons because of the work of Jesus Christ in saving sinners. That, that the priority in our ministries, be it ministries which face outwards like brace or, or missions or, or ministries that more face inward and are more oriented toward discipleship, our children's ministry, pioneer girls, boys brigade, youth group, care groups, that we overtly seek to keep Christ and his work for us centered. It's very easy to kind of be blown along by different doctrines in a ministry or in a church. And as I mentioned, there's good ones out there. And we will at times focus on this or on that or the other. But even 
while we're focused over there, there remains one main priority and one overarching focus, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified for us. That's what it means to be gospel-centered. So letter B, why? Why be gospel-centered? The first answer to that of the three I will give is that the gospel is the central message of Scripture. It's the central message of Scripture. So let me argue, why does that matter? And then I'll show you that that is true. If a church wants to be built on the Bible, then what the church emphasizes should be what the Bible emphasizes. You could find a hundred different themes in the Bible that are all good and true, and churches have and do focus on those different themes, and I mentioned some of them. But to be truly built on God's Word is to allow our ministry to be contoured according to God's Word. And the contours of Scripture are gospel contours. The Scripture, this book, is about Jesus Christ from end to end. So two ways that we can see that. The first is that it is the storyline of the Bible. The gospel is the storyline of this book. We are used to thinking about the New Testament when we think about the storyline of, of the gospel, right? But the gospel begins all the way back in Genesis. So the storyline of the Bible. Here's a simple storyline. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. That's the storyline of the Bible. You start in Eden with creation. And while still in Eden, we get to point number two, the fall. Didn't take long. And then you, you just work through the Old Testament and through much of the New Testament, dealing with this problem of a sinful people and a holy God. And a God who seems inclined to do good to his people and give mercy to his people, and yet who we know is holy and just and good and cannot pass over sin. And what are we going to do with all this? That's kind of the Old Testament right there. What's going to happen? And then in Christ's coming, he brings us back to God. There's reconciliation at the center of the book. As God and man are reconciled through the gospel, through the work of Jesus Christ. And then we end up, finally, in Revelation at complete restoration of all that was lost, of all that had been taken away through the fall. So we start in a garden, and we end up in a city, a garden city. We start with God's people in God's place with God's presence, and we end up with God's people in God's place with God's presence. This is the storyline of the Bible. This is the gospel. The second way that we can see that the gospel is the central message of Scripture is that Christ is actually revealed throughout the entire Bible. And if, if you're new to the concept, I think you are not new to the concept that Christ is revealed in the New Testament. I probably don't need to argue for that very much. We're familiar that the New Testament starts with four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that tell us about Jesus' birth and his life and his death and his resurrection. So these are the center point where we, we get to see the gospel most clearly. That's why those books are called gospels. 
because we see Christ most clearly in them. The rest of the New Testament unpacks all of that. What did it mean? What happened in Christ's death? What does his resurrection mean for God's people? What hope does that give us? How then shall we live in light of what Christ has done? The whole New Testament unpacks that. But what you might not be as familiar with is that the Old Testament is designed by God to point ahead to Christ, to speak of Christ. So there's thousands of these windows ahead to Christ. You could think of the sacrificial system and how for hundreds and hundreds of years, God's people were trained to understand that without the shedding of blood, there will be no forgiveness of sin. Hundreds of years of being trained under a sacrificial system that required a lamb without spot or blemish to be offered for sin. Or you you could think of King David, for example, and how a godly and righteous king is a blessing to God's people. And yet, then you see King David's weaknesses and you go, ah, close, but God's people need a better king than that. And that whispering of our need for Christ continues right there as well. You can think of Joseph, right? Betrayed by his brothers into Egypt, suffering at his brother's hands and saving all of them through his suffering. Pictures of Christ over and over and over. These are not my ideas. These are uh, the ideas of Christ and the New Testament writers. In John chapter 5, Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and he says to them, you search the scriptures. And when Jesus says the scriptures, The only scriptures were the Old Testament at the time, right? So you you search the Old Testament because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. He boldly declares as he stands before them, that book in your hand talks about me. And if you miss me, you've missed it. Then in Luke 24, Jesus was talking to his own disciples And he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So the law of Moses was about Jesus and all the prophets were about Jesus and the Psalms are about Jesus. The last verse that I have there under this section is 1 Corinthians 15, which shows the priority of the gospel in Paul's ministry. I'm going to read it for us. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And here's where he says it. For I delivered to you as of first importance. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So he points out that all of this has happened in accordance with the Scriptures. The Scriptures predicted Christ and what He would do, and he makes it very clear that the first importance to Him 
in his ministry, in what he proclaimed, in what he held up, in what he taught, was the gospel of Jesus Christ. So number one, the gospel is the central message of Scripture. Why else should we be gospel-centered? Number two, because the gospel is the message most needed by the lost. It is the message most needed by the lost. Now, to unpack this, I want to take a minute and actually walk through this a bit. I want to do this from Isaiah's perspective. I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 6. And I'm actually going to do something unusual in a minute. I'm going to ask you to stand up. Because this passage is a, is a passage I, Christians should stand for. It is, it is walking into the presence of God. And the first reality that we have to understand as we consider the gospel is the holiness of God. So the first bullet point there, the reality is God's holiness. Let's stand together. I'll read Isaiah 6, 1 through 4. This is Isaiah speaking. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with Two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Glory. May be seated. It was not enough for the seraphim to simply declare God to be holy. Indeed, it was not enough for them to declare it twice. They had to declare it three times. This is the biggest highlighter available in Jewish literature to declare it three times. He is the trice holy God. And even the perfect seraphim that exist in his presence, I, this is remarkable, they have six wings. I'm used to angels having two wings. These have six. Why? Well, two for flying. All right, I thought so. Two for sunglasses. Because they, perfect as they are, cannot look upon the Lord in his holiness, cannot gaze without blocking their faces upon the glory of the holy God. And then two, to cover their feet, just picturing that, that place where, where our feet come in contact with the earth and are dirty, and there's a kind of humility and self-abasement before God that even the sinless seraphim have. This is our God. This is who God is. This is the God that holds the universe together moment by moment. This is the reality behind realities, that God exists 
and He is holy. And we know nothing of it because we live in a sinful and broken world. And our eyes are dimmed by our own sin and by the fact that we are accustomed to other people's sin. And we know not the fraction of what it means to be holy. That's the governing reality of the universe. And then the problem, of course, the next thing is sin. And what Isaiah finds is that he stands in the presence of God. All of a sudden, his sins are on full display. We continue in Isaiah chapter 6, now verse 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Friends, I think we live much of our lives, even as believers. We'll, we'll, we'll be aware of a sin here and a sin there. And praise God, we, we repent of that and we give that to the Lord. But friend, the day that you stand before the unfiltered holiness of God, your response would be as Isaiah's. Woe is me. I had no idea. I had no idea. Woe is me. I'm undone. What hope is there for a sinful man in the presence of this glory? And this is not just Isaiah's problem. Turning to page two in your notes. This is all of our problems. Romans chapter 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Universal problem of humanity. That's the problem. And then we get to the necessity. The necessity is justice. The necessity is not grace, it's not mercy. The necessity is justice. Why? Because God is holy and sin exists. That's why. And justice requires a response to evil. It requires a response to wickedness. Holiness motivates justice. It even requires it. Justice, which overlooks injustice, is not justice. Justice that overlooks evil, that overlooks sin, that overlooks wrong, is not justice. And it's not capable for a holy God to be less than just and less than righteous. To stop short of full justice is injustice. And the problem with every human, is that we are on the wrong side of that equation. All of us are all about justice until the fingers point in our direction. Then we're all about mercy. <laughs> and as God makes clear in Romans chapter 6, justice for sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And that is eternal death apart from God. Our hope, next bullet point, the hope is mercy. The hope is mercy. This is illustrated for us in 
the book of Isaiah back there, right? We're back there. Isaiah's in the throne room and he's gazing upon the Lord and he reflects on himself and says, woe is me. And God responds to Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And Isaiah must have shouted with joy. Wow. Mercy in the throne room itself. Woe is me. I'm undone. I can do nothing. But God did something. And he sent his angel with this, with this coal from the altar that, that atoned for Isaiah's sin. Took away Isaiah's guilt. Here's the thing. I don't see any coals flying around. Like, what does this mean for us? Friends, this is an Old Testament picture of the gospel. What this is. It's an Old Testament picture, picturing in kind of a prophetic or poetic way. What does it look like for God to extend mercy to people? And we see a picture of it in Isaiah. And then we see the reality in Jesus Christ. The next bullet point, the solution and I'm going to give you two rather big words in this. The solution is propitiation through substitution. Propitiation through substitution. I give you a definition here from Wayne Grudem's excellent systematic theology. Propitiation is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end. And in so doing, changes God's wrath toward us into favor. Propitiation is what was pictured in those Old Testament sacrifices. As the, as the animal died, it pictured wrath, pictured death upon that animal so that the person who was offering that animal could live. That was, that was the picture. Christ is the reality of that picture. 1 John 4.10 Propitiation is not a Theology word. It's a Bible word. Straight in our Bibles. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is, God sent His Son so that God's own wrath against us would be turned away from us and that He could act towards us in love and in mercy. Now, I love Wayne Grudem's definition. It is 100% right. It's a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end and changes God's wrath towards us into favor. So, that's true, but, that's totally true, but we ought not think of God as only wrathful to us prior to Christ because that's not true. Look at the verse we just read in 1 John. In this is love, not that we love God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Here's the miracle, that while we were yet sinners, God loved us. Yet, He was constrained by His own justice to act towards us in wrath. And so... 
out of love for us, he sent his son to appease that wrath that he could then pour out his mercy and his favor upon us. Glory to God, this stuff is good. Glory to God. Praise God for his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, Christ came to offer propitiation through substitution. So he's the substitute. That is, one standing in the place for another. So here's, here's the thing about this. The substitute had to be a human, right? All the pictures in the Old Testament of bulls and goats and pigeons and lambs were pictures. But as the New Testament tells us, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. They are not an adequate substitute for an image bearer, for a human being. The only substitute for a human must be a human. But that is a problem. Because any human that would step forward to bear the wrath of God for another would find that they must, in fact, bear the wrath of God for themselves. For every human is a sinner. So there's none, there, there's none available to be a, a substitute for someone else because we all stand before God worthy of his wrath. And then there's the second problem that the substitute, well, the substitute must be God himself. Because who can stand in as one human the place for thousands and millions over all of history? What one human could bear the wrath of God for millions of humans? No human can do that. It takes God to do that. Friend, there's only one person that fits the puzzle piece here. That one person is Jesus Christ, who is fully God and able to bear the full wrath of God against the sin of his people. And fully man, perfect man, capable of standing in the place of men and bearing God's wrath. And you know, God was the only one that could bear the wrath of God. And no one could convince him to do it. No one. There's none strong enough to arm wrestle God into doing this. None wise enough to appeal with him enough to get him to do it. And friend, I'll tell you, there was no one asking God to do it either. And yet God, being rich in mercy, when no one else could avail upon him, he availed upon himself to step into time and to bear his own wrath for the sake of his people so that he could pour out upon us mercy. Glory, glory, glory to God. Second Corinthians 5.21 for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is substitution. Our sin on Christ, his righteousness on us. John Stott asks this question, how could God be holy and 
and just and righteous and, and, and be a just God. And also show mercy on sinners. How, how could he ever do such a thing? These things seem incompatible. John Stott. How then could God express simultaneously his holiness and judgment and his love and pardon only by providing a divine substitute for the sinner so that the substitute would receive the judgment and the sinner the pardon? Praise God for propitiation through substitution. Friend, this message is exclusive. We've, we, we are arguing right now that this is the one message the world most needs to hear. This is the exclusive message of salvation, as Jesus said in John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12 repeats it. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So a church must keep this message central because it is the message the world most needs to hear. And there's no one else preaching it but the church. The response then appropriate response to the gospel and even friend right now the response i invite you to take if you have not turned to the lord before the response to the incredible work of god on your behalf is simply repentance and faith repentance is to turn away from your old life your own way your your sin and to turn to him and faith is to trust him to be your divine substitute. To trust Christ to take away your sin. Mark 1.15, Jesus himself at the very beginning. These are the first words of his ministry. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I invite you to do so today. Page three. We just said that the gospel is the message most needed by the lost. And I, I trust that everyone here resonated with that. Glory to God. But now I want to challenge you that not only is the gospel the message most needed by the lost, but the gospel is the message most needed by the saved as well. This is the message most needed by believers. Christians need the gospel too. We do not just use the gospel as the front door to Christianity and then leave it behind as we explore other rooms. The gospel is the central message for the believer. It's the life transforming, the life conforming message. It's the fuel for our sanctification and growth. It's the source of our love for God. It's what gives us humility before one another and hope before even our trice holy God. It's the gospel. Notice what Paul says to the Romans. He's writing to Christians in Rome. And at the beginning of his letter, this is what he says to them. He's, I want to come to you because I've got a message for you, Christians. Here's what he says. 
So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. What one message did Paul want to preach to Christians in Rome? The one message, the one of first importance to Corinth is now the first importance in Rome as well is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Romans 16, 25, as Paul ends the letter, he returns this and gives us one reason why he wants to preach the gospel to Christians. He says, now to him who was able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. How are believers strengthened? They are strengthened by the gospel. They are strengthened by the preaching of Jesus Christ. By him being exalted, by him being held forth, by him being what is most important. This strengthens the believer. So three reasons that I'll give why the message is most needed by the saved. And the first is ongoing humility. Ongoing humility. Friend, if, if you've been a Christian for a long time, then by God's grace, you've experienced some change from who you used to be. By God's grace, you've, you've grown in holiness and godliness and, and you've forsaken some sin. Glory to God. Uh, but there is a danger for a sinner who grows in godliness to become proud of their godliness. And pride is not godly. Pride is the pernicious and insistent enemy of the believer, and it finds its match in the gospel. Because no matter how much you grow, dear saint, you will never grow past being a justified sinner. That will always be true. A sinner was justified by mercy, who is made right with God by mercy. This is going to be true throughout your life, throughout my life. This is, this is where we can return time and again to humble ourselves before the cross, which is the only appropriate posture before the cross. No one should stand before the cross of Christ. For he bore my sin there. It should humble the believer. That's true in this world. That's true in the next world. Do you know we've got a glimpse of what eternal praise is going to look like in Revelation? Uh, a glimpse. We actually get the lyrics to the song. Kind of cool. So God posts the lyrics to the song in Revelation chapter 5. And here it is. It is a gospel song. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Friend, there's some great news here for believers. One day we're going to reign with Christ. You see that? We are, you are, priests to God. You're, you're his nation. You're his, his people. You're his kingdom. 
And that's because of his blood and his sacrifice for you. So the gospel will continue to be the source of our humility even into eternity as we forever remain dependent upon the mercy and the grace and the goodness of God. So it gives ongoing humility, which we need, but number two or the next bullet, it gives ongoing hope. Gives ongoing hope for us. And this is the one which I am most eager for many of you to hear this morning. Because though we are always justified sinners, we are always justified sinners. Always. I want to remind you of the sweet truth of justification. Justification being that means by which we are justified. What is that? It's written there in your notes. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. Friends, if you're in Christ, it doesn't matter how you feel today. If you're in Christ, it doesn't matter if you're remembering the gospel today. If you're in Christ, it doesn't matter whether yesterday was your most righteous day or your least righteous day in a long time. You are justified in Jesus Christ as much today as you ever will be in all of eternity. Glory to God. Do you want hope in this life? Because I'll tell you what, you're going to have some bad days. Christians should be about growing in holiness, by the way. We should be about that. And I view, I, as I look out at Christianity in, in general, evangelical Christianity in general, there's a desire to grow in holiness, desire to grow in godliness, a mourning over our own sins. That's good. That's appropriate. But friend, your growth in godliness has no impact on your justification. None. You are justified in Christ. Friend, you want a hope that you can take with you through every wave, in every valley, in every dark place. It is this, that Christ has made me righteous. And to this I cling, that Christ has made me righteous. Today on my best day, I'm not going to look to myself and my best dayness for my hope. And on my worst day, I know, oh, Lord, if it were not for you, I have no hope. But because of you, I have every hope. Friend, the, you need the gospel. Now, if you're a Christian, you have it. But what I'm trying to also say, Christian, remember it. Treasure it. Bring it back to mind. Don't focus so much on your growth or lack of growth in godliness that you forget the cross of Christ because that's where the fuel's at. That's where we fall in love with Jesus again. That's where we, where we recognize that the Lord is going to keep us to the end, me, even me, through all that I'm walking through. So we've got these two words. We've got justification and, and sanctification. Justification is yours in Christ. Sanctification is this growth in godliness thing. Praise God for that. Let's grow in godliness. 
But sanctification never influences the first. You are justified in Christ. 1 John chapter 3 speaks to something that I think is pretty common in the hearts of believers. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, there are some here and perhaps many here whose hearts condemn them. I think it can be a gift as a believer to have a soft conscience, one easily affected by sin, one acutely aware of guilt. That can be a gift, but it's a heavy gift to bear. And friend, if that describes you, then then memorize 1 John 3, 19 through 20, and begin to put this into practice. Whenever our heart condemns us, what? Then we are condemned? Whenever our heart condemns us, well, it must be right. So it must be true that I'm condemned. Whenever my heart condemns me, I just can't stand before the Lord because my heart... No, no, none of that. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Glory to God. God is greater than your heart. Uh, Let's just make this simple. Truth is bigger than your feelings. Justification doesn't care how you feel today about whether you're justified or not. God declared it, and it is so. If you're in Christ, praise God for that. Friend, do not get accustomed to finding hope anywhere else. Here is lasting hope for every believer. You will have the day when your heart condemns you, and on that day, look to your God who is greater than your heart. For he remembers what his son did for your behalf. So ongoing humility, ongoing hope, and finally, ongoing holiness. Ongoing holiness. There can be this idea that a focus on the free grace of God will produce Christians that don't care about growth. Will produce Christians that, that just live or whatever. And make no mistake, there are many people who claim to be Christians who say, you know, I've got my fire insurance, I'm going to go live however I want. But the true receipt of the grace of God transforms the believer and changes the believer. Doesn't instantly perfect the believer, but does change the believer. You want a fuel that will last you through your entire life, through the decades, however many you have left, As you seek to follow Jesus, there is only one fuel that will last in your tank. And it's not guilt. That fuel, I've tried it. It's not a lot of fun to burn that fuel. And it always runs out when it's most needed. And it's not duty. It's not obligation. And it's not even fear. There's only one fuel that will last you. And that fuel is a love for God. That is the only one. And where are you going to find a love for God? You, helpless sinner, you so aware of your sin and God's holiness, how far you are from Him. How how could you come to love Him? It is only in seeing His love for you. And the only place you will see that on your dark day is the cross of Christ. As your substitute hung there for you, 2 Corinthians 5, 14. 
Just this amazing passage. It says the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So here's the gospel, right? One died for all. That's what we're talking about here. Substitution of Christ. He died. Why did he do that? Not to produce a bunch of people that just take advantage of grace and go and live however they want. He says that the the purpose here, he died for all that we who live might no longer live for ourselves, but for him. Okay, great. But how does that work? How does that work? how, how 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 do I do that? Comes back to the first phrase, for the love of Christ controls us. This is remarkable. Friend, the scriptures teach that we are slaves. All of us. You can be slaves of sin, and you're about sin. In some way, you could be slaves to the law, and in your own way, seeking to just fulfill the law apart from Christ. Or (laughs) you can have the third option. You can be slaves to the love of Christ. It is the love of Christ that controls the believer. It is, in other words, I see his love for me, and I am compelled to follow him. Lord, what you've given me so freely, how may I respond? How may I live my life? How may I stop living for myself and start living for you? Well, that's exactly what the passage says, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Friend, you want lasting fuel for your Christian walk. That will be found in your love for God. And that will be found in reflecting on his love for you. And it will be the love of Christ controlling your life. We need Jesus, Christians. We need Jesus. We need the gospel. We need ongoing humility and ongoing hope and ongoing fuel for holiness. Let's not move on from it. Let's not forget or neglect the gospel, but let's treasure it together. Let's remember it together. Let's celebrate it together. So there's going to be two things we do here at the end of the service together to celebrate the gospel. Two different things. One is we're going to sing, and the second, we're going to take communion. And both of these are going to point us to Christ. So the last page of your notes actually has the song that we're going to sing, and I want to go over it with you. You might be familiar with it, but if you are, you didn't learn it here, (laughs) because I don't think we've ever sung this song at Mercy Hill, but it is an old hymn, and it is a beautiful hymn. And I want to point your attention to the first verse and response, and then I'll talk about one other. So the first verse you may say, points to how the world needs Jesus. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick 
and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. And then the response to that, which comes right after it. And may this be the response of any that don't know the Lord today. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. So if the first verse is the invitation to come to Christ as a sinner, the the, the fifth verse points to our ongoing need for him. And I think my biggest burden for some in this room. Let not conscience make you linger. Not of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Friend, do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that? Because this is the matter of believing the gospel. That Christ was your substitute. And that the only fitness he requires is that you feel your need for him. And lay hold of him. As we do communion later, some will have a stricken conscience. It's appropriate for us to examine ourselves before we take communion, by the way, to repent of known sins. And if you've sinned against someone else and you haven't made it right to even go and do that before you take communion. But friends, if you have repented to the Lord, then let not conscience make you linger. Not of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he required is that you feel your need of him.